Tonight on Arena, we review Stephen Ray in Landmark's production of Crap Last Tape and new albums from Green Day, Slater Kinney and Crahur White. Five one double five one is the text. You can tweet the program at RTE Arena, and you can listen to us or watch us on live stream. The live stream is on RTE.ie forward slash Arena. Craps last tape by Samuel Beckett, short one man show that has always attracted iconic actors. It was written in 1959, in fact, for the great Irish actor Patrick McGee. Others, including Michael Gambon and John Hurt, have subsequently made the role their own. Now Stephen Ray steps up in a production by Anne Clark's company Land. Mark, which opened this week at the Project Arts Centre in Dublin. You may have heard director Vicky Featherstone speaking with me last week on the show about working with Stephen on this iconic Beckett play. Helen Meany went to see Craps last tape for us. She's with me in, in studio this evening. At one level, it's a very complex play, and at another level, it's very simple. Um, Beckett, if Beckett ever is simple, Helen. I mean, a 69-year-old man sits down uh, on his birthday to listen to himself talking on previous birthdays. Uh, tell us a little bit about him, who he is or how, what we learn about him and the nature of this yearly tape making that he has been doing. Yeah, it's it's a ritual. There's a ritual aspect to it that this is something that he does, that he's kept these tapes. Um, we The fact that the title of the play is Crap's Last Tape gives us a sense yeah, of... Yeah something drawing to a close but that he feels compelled to repeat um, and he is sitting at his a table there's a lot of business at the beginning of him trying to find the exact tape that he's been looking for and that is written down on a scrap of paper in his pocket so everything about it is so premeditated and means something to him every aspect of this ritual um, and then we we hear then we listen to him at th- 39. This is the one he has deliberately selected mm. for this particular birthday. So we start wondering why this? Why this tape? And we then find out more about his younger self and then we hear the comments and the interjections and the response of the 69-year-old crap. It's a really, it seems simple but it's very, very ingenious way yeah. of thinking about the self and memory and, and how you look back at yourself in the past and think that was a different person. Uh, it, it's, it's funny enough, I said this to Vicky Featherstone when I was speaking to her. I'm sure there are lots of very clever actors who on the 39th birthday <laughs> recorded the thir- the, those <laughs> tapes from that particular point in time and who at the age of 69, they may have already reached it or they may be on the way for them, are saying, now I'll do a production with me now and me actually at 39. Stephen Ray didn't quite do that, but he was listening to recordings of himself that he made a while back. Yeah, um, I didn't know that until I read it in the programme. Mm. So that really... You should have been listening to us when yeah, we well, spoke I to Vicky Featherston. I know, mea culpa. <laughs> but I, uh, I found that that added a whole other layer. Mm, so, yeah. so therefore, the actor Stephen Ray is also listening to his voice. Now, Younger it's not, self. It's a, I think he said around twelve years yeah, ago 12 years that ago, he recorded yeah. them. So that's that's just that just is fascinating. Mm. Um, and to, to listen to his the voice in the recording and the voice um, of you know as performed. But it, it's it's a it's a play of layers. And what's lovely about it is many things are not explained. 
But we, we learned some really important things, that the younger crop had ambitions, artistic and creative ambitions, uh, to be a writer. And also that at some point in this, around the same time, he ended a love affair. And, yeah. and this is what the excerpts that we hear are, are, are just constantly referring to and returning to. And he, he, there's a sense that he broke off the relationship in order to pursue his, his artistic ambitions. But we now know from the response of the, of the current day crop that they, they were not really fulfilled and that he's disappointed in that. So it's, it's full of pain and regret yeah. and, and uh, melancholy. I, I said to, to Vicky Featherston when we were speaking to her too, we, we heard one of, a little bit of one of the recordings, the very kindly let us play it. And the phrase that jumped out of me was Stephen Ray saying, sound is a bell. <laughs> he took the word sound was the one that I really noticed. And it wasn't that he overdid it, but he just, he explored every single sound within that uh, that diphthong that is ow, you know, and, and it was wonderful just to hear what he does with the sound. I think he does something similar, or you you just felt he did something similar as the the modern day, the contemporary yes, crap. Yes, he 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 fastens on certain words, so he loves that the older crop loves the word spool. He's looking for the spools of tape, so mm. he's saying spool. He's kind of rolling it around his mouth, and it's as if he's pronouncing it, you know, as if he'd never heard the word before. And the other one is viduity, the condition of being a widow, and he. Mm gets out the dictionary and he's, you know, there's that sense of relishing the sound of language, the rhythm of the language um, and the, almost a musical sense yeah, that this I, piece has been composed, uh, you know, for yeah. the sound and the music um, as much as the, the meaning of the words. Yeah, and, and, and again, uh, uh, Stephen Ray had had been, uh, had worked with Beckett in the room on a production of Endgame, ironically enough, with Patrick McGee, for whom the crap part was written back in the, in, in the olden days as it were, in the, in the Royal Court Theatre. Yes, I mean, that's just extraordinary that, yeah, and that Beckett was there, was, was yeah. to, to mark uh, Beckett's 70th birthday in the Royal Court Theatre, and Beckett was in the room for the rehearsal. Mm. So, so Stephen Ray, you know, he's almost like uh, theatre royalty now. You know, he's actually worked with Beckett, not on, not on Crapsas tape, but so yes, he, he actually, in, was, in a, yeah. a fantastic interview in the programme, he said that he got notes from Beckett, you know. I mean, so that's, that's uh, that I, makes you those, really think. Yeah, you know? one of those notes was about don't go looking for meaning look for sound. Yes, uh, and I think, I think it was about, uh, you know, ambiguity mm. as well. And so just to know that uh, the actor that we're watching has wor worked with Beckett gives you the yeah. sense of, of what he learned from the writer of this play. And I, I do think that that brings a lot of uh, richness to it. Vicky Featherstone talks about the play being in three parts, the setting up, the listening and the speaking. We've, sp we've spoken about both the listening and the speaking there, the setting up and how he looks in that setup period. What's he wearing? Yes, so it's very much uh, that Beckett sort of interest in vaudeville and mm. musical and, and clowning and the clown tradition. So uh, Stephen Ray is wearing a, a pair of stripy socks in the, uh, very much evoking the clown tradition and big and, and white shoes that are have kind of round toes like, mm. you know, in the, in, like Charlie Chaplin. Um, he is wearing um, a, a sleeveless jacket, almost like a tunic, full of the pockets that are essential for keeping all the bits of paper and the keys for opening the drawers. And so there's a lot of, you know, fiddling around and food 
shoestring at the beginning. There's a lot of business, yeah. Business at the beginning, which, you know, is, I suppose, the really well-known part of the play where he's looking for a banana, he's looking for the tapes, he's shuffling around, he's opening the drawer, and in this production it's a really long drawer that's pulled out rather than a whole load of little drawers. And then then he gets really frustrated, he starts throwing the tapes, he can't find the ones, and he's throwing them out into the darkness of the the stage. Uh, And then there's the business with the bananas, and which is comic. And Stephen Ray has that lovely... um, He's got a capacity to change his expression, mm. so he looks like a child at times. In those moments, he looks like, gleeful, and almost when he's eating the banana, he looks like a baby. Actually, uh, I don't know how. It's just this remarkable ability to express these tiny flickers of emotion through his eyes and through the way he moved his mouth. So that's all light. That's very light mm. and, and playful at the beginning. But that clownish aspect of thing, you know, we we all know that kind of uh, idea of the sad clown or the, the hurt clown or the yeah. pained clown. Yes. Is that the sort of clown that we, we begin to oh, see yes. as, as the play progresses? It does. And in fact, what it, it really, that, that lightness is replaced by this deep sense of melancholy, actually. Mm. Um, and his shoulders are, are stooped throughout. And there's a sense when he's talking about his regrets that there's a sense almost of, of frustration with himself and also of shame. Um, and that adds a real, a real sense of, of pathos to it. And so his performance is, is minutely observed. So, I mean, I think the play is re- written with extraordinary precision and Ray's performance is, it matches that precision in that it changes from moment to moment, sometimes with just a flicker in his eyes. You've described um, the, the kind of clownish costume and I love the idea of that, the one big long <laughs> drawer yeah, that comes yeah, out. Yeah. It's almost comic in and it of is it, com- it is very funny, itself. actually. What about the rest of the set? What do we get? Well, it's 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 very abstract. It's, it's quite austere. Jimmy it's, Barton, isn't it's it? It's Jimmy yes. Barton yeah. and it's all about the lighting. It, the, it's all about the precision of Paul Kogan's lighting hitting the edges of this table and then a geometric walkway behind where Stephen Ray goes in and fixes himself a drink through a door. But it's it's like you know, it's very much evoking uh, black and white cinema. It's very sleek. It's very mm-hmm. sophisticated. It's not the messy room that we might have might have seen. You know, it, it, of Crap's Den. It's described. You know, in the program. But actually, this is this is more refined and polished. The whole production is very polished, and even even down to the way the table is made. I mean, you know, it's it, it's it's the craft of it. Um, it's very beautiful to look at. But but it's a more refined production of Crap's tape than I think I've ever seen. And do, do you put that down to Stephen Ray's performance? It's difficult, I suppose. Uh, good direction is often invisible by its very nature. How much of it do you think is is Vicky Featherstone? How much of it do you think is Stephen Ray or is it simply the collaboration? Because they had worked together before on David Ireland's play, Cypress Avenue. They worked together before absolutely brilliantly and Stephen Ray's performance in Cypress Avenue is unforgettably savage. Mm. I don't know whether you saw it, but... Yeah. So uh, I think they, they seem to have, a, you know, they seem to have a, an understanding. that So the precision is in the direction and the precision is in the performance. Um, and that's very, very reflective of of the text itself and it's this interplay between silence and sound and it's so calibrated um i mean i think i think i would uh, this is a matter of taste i would have preferred a more messy slightly uh, shambolic uh, crap but that's mm. just that's just because that's kind of how i visualize him so but it's not a it's not a criticism but it's just that um he's dressed quite well and you know it's mm. um and the set is so beautiful that there's something, there's something about some rawness, perhaps, missing. But 
but yet once you focus on Stephen Ray's face, beautifully lit, um, particularly towards the end, as his his energy is falling, and he's recalling the the lost love, and he's cradling the tape recorder, and he's almost lying on top of it, as he describes lying in the boat with his lover the day that he ended the relationship. It's it's just got this most overwhelming sense of loneliness, wow. and that's I found that the ending really moving. So uh, that sounds like uh, while you had slight taste differences, you had no reservations about the production itself. Oh, I mean, it's, it's of course a wonderful play and this is a beautifully nuanced performance. Yeah. No, so go see if you can get a ticket, I would guess at this point in time even. Crap's Last Tape is at the Project Arts Centre in Dublin. It's there through until the 3rd of February and you get full details on projectartcentre.ie. Dance Theatre Company Junk Ensemble take their show Dances Like a Bomb on an eight venue tour at the end of this month. This hour-long piece is a powerful duet between actor Michael Murphy and dancer Finola Cronin exploring the realities of the ageing body. Twin sisters Jessica and Megan Kennedy are the founders of and artistic directors of Junk Ensemble. Delighted that Megan is with me in studio this evening along with Finola Cronin, one of the performers from the piece. It, it's interesting, Megan, that what we're looking at here is uh, what you're looking at in in the show is the aging, the aging body. Dance is a very powerful way of exploring that theme. It is, and thanks so much for having us. Uh, we are really interested in the reclamation of the aging body. In dance, there's this tendency to think that after you reach your 30s, that like athletes, that that's sort of the end of your career. Maybe mm. you go into teaching or you go into choreography. I think it's the exact opposite. And I would imagine Fanola agrees with me. Mm-hmm. Um, and so it's a way, uh, this show and also just the, the ethos is a way of embracing the body as it does age. Um, we can do things in a completely different way and we need to, and it, it's not derogatory. It's actually something that needs to be celebrated. Yeah, I suppose, Finola, as, as Megan says, of course you would want to explore this because you have been a dancer for since when? Long time. <laughs> okay. Long if, time. <laughs> well, if yeah. I say Pina yeah. Bausch and, yes. uh, you know, yeah. and, and yeah. the kind of choreography that she was doing in the mid-20th century. You yes, know. yes. So I, I worked with Pina from about 1985. Mm. Um, um, and before that, I worked with a woman who had worked with Pina, and that was in the early 80s. So that's a while ago. It yeah. really is, yeah. <laughs> and, 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 but I guess, you know, Megan's saying there quite rightly that there is this attitude around dance that, well, you get to 30 and that's it. Possibly even more so with classical ballet and classical dance. But isn't the whole or wasn't the whole idea in many ways of contemporary dance Mm. and and people like Pina Bausch, Bausch, the idea was, no, we we want this dance to sit on the body of the dancer, not change the body of the dancer into some classical form. Yeah, that's a good way of putting it. So... So it's not obviously if it's a classical ballet piece, you know these these become really classics. Mm. Their repertoire, everybody knows what they should look like, kind of thing. Um, and yet we know of a lot of dancers who continue to dance. Sylvie Guillem is one, you know, who who will dance way into their forties. Yeah. Um, 
and, and be able to carry out those kinds of major roles like Giselle and so on. Um, in contemporary dance, it's a much freer scenario. It's a broad spectrum of different engagements with the body. Um, and I think the, yeah, I, I think one of the key things is, is that just what, what, what you can bring to the body and bring to how you can bring your body to the stage becomes really interesting because you build experience. I mean, any performer, any artist will build experience over the years. And, and it is terrific to be able to see what you can do with your experience, but with this body, which is no longer that which what yeah. it was. But the previously. emphasis is on what you can do as Absolutely. opposed to what you, yeah. as Absolutely. opposed to what you can't yeah. do. And, and again, I think sometimes there's a, a presumption around contemporary dance. Oh, yeah, it's just not as it's not as disciplined as classical dance. That is not true. No, <laughs> we wouldn't <laughs> agree with that. Yeah. No, true. but you yeah. know that, that yeah. I think that attitude is um, there. Yeah, and that's probably got to do with the kind of individuality. This, mm. you know, which, which is great about contemporary. It's, it's like you know, it's like art. You know, it's it's like poetry. It's like you know, uh, it is. In, there is an individual approach to it in a contemporary context. Um, so you're not always doing Shakespeare. You're not always yeah. doing yeah. Petit Pas. You're you're doing contemporary choreographic work. Uh, and you're making that often in collaboration with the with the choreographers, which is what's so exciting. And that allows the entry into your own body, I think, in the studio to begin to make the work. Dance is like a bomb, provocative and evocative, I would have to say, as a title. Um, it's Finola and it's Michael Murphy. Are we, are we telling a story here or what is the nature of the relationship between the two, the two characters that Michael and Finola give us, uh, Megan? The relationship fluctuates throughout the piece and that was definitely our intention. We really, we embrace the ambiguity of their relationships, but it does ultimately feel like they are hurtling towards the end together. And that is really the way it feels near the end. But there's this sisterly, brotherly relationship at times. There's the carer and the caree. There's the fact that sometimes Michael is resistant to the care or sometimes he overcares towards Finola. So that caring relationship mm. definitely looked at as in caring for his mother and vice versa. And we have a section called Vulnerable Care where Finola is connected to an IV drip. So we're really playing with the relationships and then also the fact that they perhaps are going to die together and they're there together until the end, um, but they have their own individual paths near the end. Yeah, and, and, and I think that's important within the two characters, Finola, mm. that at times you are the carer, at times you are the person receiving the care. It, yeah, it, it, yeah. it does move around like that. Yeah. It's not that one person is the is the younger dancer and the other person is the older performer and that's the way it's going to be. It, yeah. it moves between the two. Yeah, they're not sort of linear characters yeah. in that way, you know, so they're jumping around. So one minute they're very powerful uh, physically and if you like, you know, are working with determination. Uh, yes, the isn't, there, isn't there a point when you, yes. have, when you have Michael Murphy across your shoulders effectively. Mm, well, you have to almost. <laughs> <laughs> almost, yeah. You know, there is there is a sense of of how we're using our power. Yeah. The little bit of power we might have left physically and so on. Yeah. Who's resistant to care? Oh, I think both of us are at different moments in the piece. We we are resistant. You know, there is a sense of independence, of resilience. 
Um, and I suppose, uh, yeah, that might be, a, not sure how you describe that, Megan, yeah. I feel yeah, there's yeah. a universality in that mm. feeling. I feel the same way where you, if you are helpless, you don't want to be pitied. Um, although both Michael and Fanola are, are slightly more mature than me, I still can, I absolutely can understand that sense. That resistance, that. yeah. I'm, I'm asking about that because I have a piece called a piece of music some of it, Dennis Clossie's music called Resistance exactly. to Care maybe you'd explain the role of the music within the show uh, where it fits into it for you Megan Sure yeah we have a fantastic design team um, Dennis Clossie composed the music um, so what normally happens in the studio is that we go in with movement tasks um, and as you've already alluded Resistant to Care is one of those and also Overcare and Codependent and see um, all of these movement tasks came into the studio. We created some choreographic material with Michael and Fanola, and then we would send snippets to Dennis. Dennis. So it was already called Resistance to Care. We, we, we knew that that was something that we really wanted to explore and play with, and so he returned with a piece of music, which then we bounced back, and eventually there's the finished form. Now, let's have a listen to some of that music. That's just uh, some of Dennis Cahisi's music from the show Dances Like a Bomb from Junk Ensemble and Megan Kennedy of Junk Ensemble and Fanola Cronin, one of the two performers in the piece, are with me in studio. Megan, one of the choreographers for the piece, the both of them with me in, in studio this evening. I was asking Fanola as, as we were listening to that uh, about, because te- obviously there's a very rhythmic feel to that, which kind of has... a an inherent dance feel to it. And I'm sure there are other pieces that are more abstract than that in, in those terms. But is there text involved? Is there chat between yourself and, and Michael Murphy? Or how would you describe that? Yeah, there is conversational, you know, structured conversational mm. chats and uh, prompts, I suppose, really. Um, and uh, yeah, and, and they're fun, actually. And it's, a, it's, it's an interesting way to connect with the audience when they uh, take place. Without giving too much away, you know, yeah. because yeah. because it's just, uh, I think this happens often in dance performances. People really still aren't audiences still are not necessarily w- ready for the spoken word, 
Uh, and certainly not when there may even be a little bit of a narrative in the spoken word. Mm. <laughs> and yeah. it isn't sort of, you know, in you know sentences or something that are disconnected, dropped into it. And I yeah. guess that that's why we might talk about dance theatre as opposed to dance in mm. some ways, Megan, that it, it has all the aspects of theatre within it, not simply movement and choreography. Yeah, it, it absolutely has narrative threads through it. And, and I suppose that's what myself and Jessica would always try and focus on. You can create movement, but for us, if it's not saying anything, then it doesn't mean anything in our work. So it's mm. always interrogating what that movement means, where it came from, does it still have the impulse and the, the reckoning that it began with in that original improv. So always trying to find that back. Yeah. You have to try and get that essence back. And sometimes the movement changes and that's completely fine because it is very much about that sentiment and what we're, what we're saying at that moment and certainly when we do bring in text in this work it just helps the audience understand a little bit longer yes. a little bit more so we we have a section called ways of dying which is quite farcical and that kind of breaks the ice it's then. kind of I saw one of the reviews referring to it as kind of like an American game show you know <laughs> that you have to come up with ways of ways of dying are they improvised or are they set in stone for Nola well you know <laughs> it's how we do it, isn't it? <laughs> She's giving nothing away here. Absolutely, nothing I can clearly see. I wondered, because it was very well reviewed um, yeah. uh, in previous runs, it was in Edinburgh, yeah. and it has, I think you've done as, as previous tours around Ireland. What sort of reaction did you get? What kind of feedback did you get from audience members perhaps afterwards? Well, I think, you know, I was thinking about, about Edinburgh actually specifically as well. In, in so far as in Edinburgh, it was not a dance audience. It's a very general kind of yes. audience. And, and that was quite different, I must say. It's, it's a very, you know, I suppose... Uh, Did it in, suit in the our, piece more? I, it, it, no, I wouldn't make any comparisons mm. between, between a general audience and a dance audience. But I think it, it just, it made for a, a different, I suppose, feel on stage with what was landing with them, if you like, and certain things that landed with them. And, and, and you could feel that reciprocity, if you like, yeah. between the audience and ourselves. And that's very pleasing when you're on stage <laughs> and course. you know it's a very diverse yeah. audience. And so that was definitely the feel uh, in, um, in Edinburgh. And I'm really looking forward to going out, you know, and doing a you know, much bigger tour now. We've done a, a mini tour last mm. year with this, but really looking forward to this tour and, and again hoping that we're going to have, uh, you know, a kind of a spec, a ride range of ages and, you know, different yeah. kinds mm. of people in the audience. Because as Megan was saying, just because it's about care and the giving of care and the taking of care, that doesn't necessarily mean it's aimed at older people in any no. way, shape or no. form. Not at all. It's yeah. definitely about the celebration of our life and, you know, life is short, so grab it. Grab and it I, when I, you can. And I have to say, I, I am constantly reminded of Shakespeare's As You Like It, the quote in there and, and so from hour to hour we ripe and ripe and from hour to hour we rot and rot and thereby hangs a tale. Very nicely put. He was good, that Shakespeare fellow, <laughs> in fairness to him, wasn't he? he? Was. Yeah. Ripe and rot. He That's what we are, we're all doing as we speak. Thank you both for coming in to us this evening. Um, that's uh, Fanola Cronin and Megan Kennedy. Dances Like a Bomb is on that national tour from the 31st of January through until the 29th of March, stopping off in Dunleary, Sligo, Cork, Longford, Galway, Carlo, Tralee, finishing up in Dublin. Um, there may be other venues in there as well, but you'll get full details of all of the performance dates and venues on the website, junkensemble.com.
And so, as usual on Friday evening, left final half hour and our album reviews slot. Green Day, Saviours, is the latest collaboration between Green Day and Grammy award-winning producer Rob Cavallo. Notable previous work with Green Day includes two of the band's most iconic al- albums, 1994's Dookie and 2004's American Idiot. We have a debut album from Armagh singer-songwriter Debate to be had over Crahur or Connor White. <laughs> I'm calling him Crahur at the moment. I'm open to correction. The album is called Swirling Voices. These are ghosts. These are other worlds. These are a co- cosmic feeling, questions about the beginning and the end of dreams. And then there's simpler songs, love songs, about the feelings of infatuation you have when you're young. That's how Crahur White describes his own album. And Carrie Brownstein and Corin Tucker, is, yeah, also known as Slater Kinney, Mark their 30th year with their 11th studio album. It's called Little Rope. The recording was tainted, of course, by tragedy after Brownstein's um, mother and stepfather died in a crash in 2002. With me in studio this evening, Eamon Sweeney and Zara Hederman. But we'll start with the return of Green Day and the opening tracks from Saviour's uh, album. It is called The American Dream Is Killing Me. There we go. The American Dream is killing me, or killing them, them being Green Day. That is the opening track on their album. Saviours, Zara Hederman and Eamon Sweeney, as I said, our reviewers on this Friday evening. Um, familiar themes, <laughs> I think it's safe <laughs> to say, um, in, in, in that song and on this album. Familiar sounds, I think it's also safe to say, yes. uh, on this album as well, Eamon. You, you won't be too surprised. No, I think if that snippet really, I think probably says it all. This, this year is the 20th anniversary of American Idiot. What we've just heard, the American dream is killing me. You could say is a carbon copy of lyrically, mm. sonically, of that said thing. And they're having a go at um, George Bush with that, and that era with American Idiot. And they kind of um, changed the lyrics of it recently on a New Year's Eve broadcast in the States of we're not part of the MAGA agenda. Yeah. Cue uproar in the States and all these people weighing in. And it's saying, kind of like nothing has like... changed either with, with Green Day or the United States yeah. of America. Yeah, well, <laughs> I think there were the people saying, how dare they? The songs should not be political. I know. Imagine, <laughs> imagine the neck of having an opinion or having a commentary. And expressing song, it in your yeah. music. Awful. How dare they? Awful to do, yeah. Um, and awful to not really have much more to say, uh, new or inventive otherwise on oh, this album. Yeah. <laughs> There's the rub. Um, do, do you agree with him in that effect they're saying the same thing maybe it has to be said 30 years later I mean yeah and it's no surprise that this album is coming out in the year of another American presidential election at mm. the end of the year um, they've always been quite politically minded again as we've said they're not really saying anything new they're adding kind of social media Instagram TikTok Uber to the mix but they do what I found in a very juvenile way Lyrics. lyrically Oh, just, there's just too many to kind of not really want to get into. You know, you even get stuff like, do you want to be my girlfriend? I'll take you to a movie we've already seen when they try not to do the political thing. 
But there were some elements, though, where when Billy Joe Armstrong, I felt, tried to be a bit more sincere and, you know, the father to a son. Yeah, he goes that was a bit a nice, more kind of, yeah, you know, there's vulnerable. There's a couple of kind of acoustic-y type tracks yeah, on the album that also, bring that to the fore. Yeah, there's a song as well where he talks about his struggle with addiction and, you know, sobriety. And mm. in those moments, he does kind of take away a bit of the mask and does get a bit more human and resonating, maybe. Yeah, and Dilemma. I, wish, I think Dilemma is the one that deals with yeah. the, the addiction. And I, let, let's listen to a little bit of that. There we go, there we go. Then that is um, Dilemma from Saviors from, from Green Day. And I was checking that it's it's 15 songs long and I was asking, what's the what's the duration? It's 46 minutes. Didn't feel like 46 minutes when I was listening no. today. No. I mean, Did, see, the problem... The, and I, I don't mean it felt <laughs> like 42. It felt like an hour and 46 minutes. Yeah, no, I hear you. I hear you loud and clear because what the best way I could sum up this album is the individual tracks on their own I can kind of go, yeah, it's okay. Mm. But when you hear it all back to back, it's just so grating and plodding. There's something about Billy Joe and there's something about the band in general, both the music and personalities, that I find likeable and simultaneously highly unlikable. <laughs> it's, just, it's a weird kind of, kind of, if that makes sense, it's just yeah. to be honest about it. Like, that's my kind of feelings on Green Day, you know? All right. Yeah, it sounds like you wanted more and I'm sorry, don't let me put words in your mouth. <laughs> did you want more? Did you get what you wanted and stars? Uh, actually, in some ways it wasn't as bad as I feared it could be. Right. So I'll go, oh, no, it's not quite a three, go two and a half, two and three quarters. Can you do that? <laughs> <laughs> you just won't give it three. Two and a bit. <laughs> two and a bit from Eamon. All right. What are you saying, Zara? Um, I, um, I think you might be a little bit more acerbic in your judgment than Eamon. Actually, surprisingly not. Um, oh. in, I actually would have preferred if this album was all instrumental because some of the arrangements did actually kind of work for me and yeah. I did get swept up. And the acoustic bits, I must say, I wanted more of that. Yeah. I didn't do more And I do think this album will slot well into their stadium tour at the moment where they're commemorating those anniversary mm. albums. So it's a three from me. A three yeah. from you. There you go. Um, that is Green Day and Saviours. Let us move on then to... Um, do we know is he Connor or Crahur? I mean, Crahur is for how it's it's spelled C O N C H U for the R White. Um, it says in the press release, Connor. Well, there you go. We'll go with what they say. <laughs> they want to want us to call him then, Connor White. I will uh, banish Crahur from my mind. Debut album from Connor White. It. Who is he? What? Where is he coming from? Uh, Armagh, I know that, but tell me more, Sarah. Um, so he's come from a long kind of musical background of being in bands and struck out as a solo artist in 2019, released a few EPs, has worked with some notable producers who've worked with Paul Weller and Frightened Rabbit back in the day. He's now actually as well signed to Bella Union, which is quite a, a feat as well for an Irish debut. Um, on their roster, you have like Beach House, Father John Misty, who he has cited as a big influence. And you do hear his influence in some of this album Swirling Violets um, outside of that though 
it's a bit of a tricky one because there's a lot of ideas, a lot of kind of references that I found in it. And he is quite an engaging presence. He's got a great voice, which yeah. I think is yeah. the strong point of this album. And there was a quote he said about how this was, there wasn't a conscious theme throughout the songs. The songs operate in a similar sort of space and a sense of surrealism to it. And for me, that kind of lack of an anchoring theme made a bit of a disconnection okay. for me. Let us have a listen to a song. Um, there was a time in the olden days when people debated between Wranglers and Levi's. <laughs> and then along came 501s. And this we left from the film before it even begun. He gave up the end. Every there we go, Connor White and 501s from his debut album Swirling Violets um, to say at the very least he has a beautiful voice yeah. and this is very pleasant listening is there, yeah. is there more to it than that um, does there need to be I think look it's 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 Bella not uh, Zara there pointed out the fact that he's got hmm. signed to Bella Union and they're giving this album a really big push it's their first album release of the year um, I do I think the voice is um, undeniably good yeah I think it's extremely promising. It's not an album that really has hooked me in. Um, I do quite like that song, 501s. The Women in the War, I Did Good Today, The Holy Death. There's some, there's some very strong numbers on it, but uh, the album as a whole doesn't, doesn't do it for me. Did, did I detect it at certain points along the way, um, Conor O'Brien and Villagers, mm -hmm. uh, that that kind of sound? Is that for, is that the world that we're in, Sarah, essentially? It's interesting that you should pick that out because he worked with a number of different producers on this album and one producer in particular he worked with is Brendan Jenkinson, who has worked quite a lot with Villagers. Yeah, yeah. And he did the song Deadwood, which is the closing track in yeah. this and is one of the kind of more interesting, experimental and textured songs. Funny enough, that was the... One that I had in my notes, I wrote down very villagers. Yeah. Um, so that um, I felt was kind of the wheelhouse that Connor White here worked with in the best. The opening song, The Holy Death, kind of has a, a bit of a similar yeah. tone, and Rivers, which has a bit of a Simon and Garfunkel spree to it, which again, villagers has that kind of uh, sensibility too. I just really wish that Connor White had have picked one style and really focused on it because I do think he has an artistic strength in his confidence and his will willingness to kind of try things but I think with a debut you really have to make a strong impact okay. in introduction Alright well let us let us listen to one of the tracks that you say has that villagers feel to it the opening track uh, Holy Death So there we go, Holy Death. And in fact, you're, you're quite rightly correcting me as we listened to, uh, to that one, Zara. That, the final track on the album, Dead, would quite definitely the villagers feel. That has a different, a slightly different influence, which you, which you pointed out, and I think is more correct. Yeah, more of a Sophie and Stevens kind of feel to it, which is a prominent one throughout. The Desner brothers as well are in there. Um, Midlake as well, he's kind of credited in harmonic, like with the vocal kind of melodies and harmonies, you really do get that sense as well. That song in particular, The Holy Death, every time I listen to it, I couldn't not get really swept up in it and sing along mm. to it. So again, it just shows he does have such a talent for crafting a 
song that will stay with you and have an impact on you. I really hope and I do think that with a subsequent release that hopefully he finds a bit more of a focus. Just briefly, lyrically, what is he writing about? What are the what are, can we are, are they very poetic lyrics or they yeah. oblique? The oblique love songs and he kind of says this what it wasn't a conscious theme, but that the songs operate yeah. in some sort of space. That kind of thing, which I find a little bit as Zara already said, you know, there is it lacks a unifying team, even even in in one song, whatever about the album. Look, it's extremely promising, as you know, yeah. and bright future ahead. No yeah, doubt. Well, yeah, and and uh, very well mannered at eleven songs and thirty seven minutes, which is the <laughs> right length for <laughs> right length for an album. Yeah, Green Day, take note. Um, stars from you on this one, Eamon. Oh, I'd go a good solid three. A solid three on this one. What are you saying, Zara? Yeah, individually the songs have it, collectively not so much, but it's a three from me as well. A solid three from you. Let us move on then to album number three, Little Rope from Slater Kinney, uh, formed in Olympia in Washington in 1994 as part of the burgeoning riot girl scene. Just, Zara, put them in in context for us, Slater Kinney. I mean, they really were the thing at mm. one time, weren't they? Yeah, it really can't be overstated how influential and impactful they were, especially in the riot girl scene and beyond. Like, they've influenced so many artists. You have even, like, St. Vincent, Beth Ditto, whether sonically or even just in how you kind of present yourself as a woman in the music industry during that very difficult time. And what's been really interesting with their career, it, they're now now in a kind of 2.0 phase so they went away for a 10 year hiatus and came back in 2015 and when they returned it was very critically acclaimed and very much welcomed by fans and with each subsequent release this is now the fourth one of this iteration mm-hmm. and they're still doing very interesting very exciting things working with different kind of interesting people St Vincent actually produced one of the albums here John Congleton has worked with them it's their first time working with them and they've always been such a vital and visceral force in music um, in just, you know, with punk rock and kind of power, kind of uh, power pop kind of rock as well. And always saying very interesting and very impassioned things. So a band who are always very exciting to listen to. Okay, let's listen to a bit of the opening track on the album. The opening track is called Hell. There we go. Opening track, Hell, from Little Rope by Slater Kinney. Um, Just actually, Zara, I'll I'll come to you in a minute, Eamon, but there is huge personal sadness behind this album. You get a touch of it, or maybe I'm I'm imposing that meaning onto that track, Hell. Uh, Just remind us of what happened during the during the making of this album yeah it kind of just preceded it happened in autumn 2022 where Car- Carrie Brownstein's mother and her stepfather were killed in a car accident in Italy mm. um, and actually a really sad part of the story was that Corinne Tucker her bandmate she was the one who called her with the information because she was listed as Carrie Brownstein's emergency contact on her passport oh. and the embassy got in touch with her and then Corinne had to relay that message onto her and Brownstein naturally was very forthcoming 
in talking about it with this album about lyrically and in the press kind of around it just saying how numb naturally she felt yeah. and how playing the guitar kind of gave her a bit of purpose and actually got her moving um, and she does describe like go into that as well quite heartfeltly in the album yeah because as I say Eamon when you listen to the track that we just listened yeah. to Hell with with that in mind it, it does kind of inform the lyrics it informs the tone of the album oh, for me absolutely uh, absolutely the single say it like you mean it I think really sums up that the kind of complicated grief saying goodbye to people not taking life for granted that whole kind of carpe diem kind of feel to it that's throughout the album and by one thing, and this is what I find most powerful about it, this is not a down album about mm, grief. Mm. It's very much a defiant album about grief. In the interviews that Brownstein has given, I think I found some of her insights are like remarkable. Mm. And the way that she kind of talks about um, that she finds herself grieving for different for her parents at different stages. One day, she feels like she's five years old. The next day, she might feel like she's a, she's an angry teenager. All this stuff, like really powerful stuff. Um, I think it's a really powerful album. They're, they're undeniably a great band. They're a confessional punk yeah. rock band. They've always been that. Both, both women were both went out with each other, lest we forget as well, uh, very infamously. Mm. And, you know, when they split up, they wrote about it. You know, yeah. they've, they've, they've documented everything going on in their lives. Yeah. You know, together and apart and everything. They're, they are a band apart. And when I did, um, Zara mentions, mentioned when they reformed in 2015 and when the first shows they did in kind of like in, uh, in Mark 2.0, if you like, uh, was a primavera. I remember yeah. just being completely swept away by it. And, uh, and I am by this record for the most part. And it's interesting that Eamon uses the word defiant. This is mm. rather than a down album, it's a defiant album. But that's Slater Kenny's, <laughs> if, if they had a kind of a, a subtitle, it would be defiant, wouldn't it? Or defiance. Absolutely. Um, and I think they do it so well here where it doesn't come Very across. Very political. Yeah. And it doesn't come across as preachy at all. It comes across really personal, I think. And I think some of the words, you know, there's one song, Don't Feel Right, which really struck with me. There's the image of... Um, Carrie Brownstein sings but for now I'll go out uh, got this ache got my dark clouds just the dogs I'm alone I need time to move slow and even that opening song Hell while we talk about you know how it kind of resonates with the grief of her parents I think that's also quite about school shootings in America and the panic that people have as a parent with their children going on and Untidy Creature uh, Untidy Creatures about the row at V. Wade being mm. overturned as well. Um, so again, like these are topics that they were singing about and have been singing about for 30 years. There we go. Untidy Creature from Slater Kinney. One, one just further thing on the album itself. Is this a, you talk, you've both been talking about this Slater Kinney 2.0. Are we still in the 2.0 mode? Are, are, are we hearing a, a, a slight development in this album or is it more of what we're used to? Is it a good entry point, I suppose, for Slater Kenny, if you don't know them? I actually do think it is a good entry point, but it's not indicative of what they have done. Mm -hmm. um, I think that this is an interesting point in that it's accessible um, and that in turn is down to, I'd say, like John Congleton's production. He worked a lot with Sharon Van Etten and that song in particular, particular musically felt a bit like kind of offcuts from her Remind Me Tomorrow album. Yeah. Um, I think, yeah, it's a good place to start with and then work backwards and you'll just get a bit more invigorated 
reinvigorated, a bit more okay. impassioned with it. Stars from you on this one, Zara. Um, it's a four for me. I thought this offered a lot and I thought it was very kind of humane as well and how it dealt with everything that it uh, covered. Four from you. And what are you saying, uh, Eamon? I would echo that four. Uh, I think it's a fantastic album. Funny enough, my only my misgiving of it is it's a little bit too polished, I think, maybe for my oh, taste. so you John wanted Connolly. a little bit more roughness. Yes, yeah. a little bit more rawness, maybe. I'm sorry, I, I missed your stars. Uh, four. four. Two fours. Okay, two fours. That's uh, Slater Kinney and the album is called Little Rope. Before that, we talked about Connor White and Swirling Violets and Green Day. And um, what was the album called? Uh, I can't think of it. Saviors. Thank Saviors. you very much. Yeah. Saviors. All I could see was the American spelling. It was no <laughs> use. Saviors. Um, Monday night, by the way, do not forget that we will be live from Dublin Castle with the first of two programmes from this year's Tradfest. Um, Stockton's Wing will be playing for us alongside some of the younger artists, including hip-hop and trad artist Strange Boy, the fresh and funky vibes we will get to of Yankari Afrobeat Collective. And there's an Irish-Indian duo there and they are called Indie Celtic that's Arena live from Tradfest at Dublin Castle first of two shows on Monday and then on Tuesday uh, Janice Ian and Ralph McTell really looking forward to those two shows but we have to get through the weekend first for this evening who was who would be Damien Chanel was on sound Leah Murphy was the researcher Ollie Hamilton was the broadcast coordinator and tonight's programme was produced by Reg Luby uh, talk to you on Monday live from Dublin Castle and Faith No Brain On will be with you after the news